So this morning, I want to get into what a disciple actually is, the average, everyday, ordinary Christian. And we're going to go through 10 characteristics of an average, everyday, ordinary Christian. And you'll see that most of the time, people take these 10 10 characteristics and ascribe them to, like, the Apostle Paul. Or we could just say Jesus. And yet, the Bible makes it very clear that they're just normal Christianity. So we're going to get into that. And the reason why we're going to do that is because in order for us to grow up into all things into him who is the head, the Bible says we have to speak truth in love. So when we speak the truth, what we're doing is laying out the standard of what God has called us to so we have something to pursue. Paul said, I put, forgetting what's behind me, I press forward to that which is ahead. He said, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. King James Version translate that, translates that as I press toward the mark. So there is a mark. There is something we're going for. We're not supposed to just float around and think that God's going to be in control of who we are and what we do and what we can accomplish. This is us about getting in the word, knowing what it says, and finding out what he's called us to so that we have something to press towards. Amen? So go to your Bibles, uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. That's where we're going to start. We're just going to talk about the Great Commission here. And last Sunday, we started praying for boldness, the baptism of fire, which we've been talking about the past few weeks. And so I'd like us to stay in that posture of heart. And I mentioned last Sunday that whenever you see God pour out his spirit in a unique way upon a people, it is always in the moment when they're mid-step on the battlefield. The point of that is, for example, we looked in the book of Acts that the disciples were already determined to go make disciples before the Holy Spirit ever came at at Pentecost. So if you read Acts chapter 1, it says they were already choosing people to become witnesses of the resurrection. They were ready to go. So when Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2. They were already on their way. And so there's this pattern in scripture where God says, go and I'll follow you with signs and wonders. If we don't go first, he doesn't move. There has to be the determination to go before he moves. And so what, you, what we also notice with this is that in um, the example, we'll get to this too, in Mark 16 talks about how signs and wonders will follow. These signs will follow those who believe. We also go to John chapter 16, talks about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is described with a Greek word called parakletos. It's translated comforter or helper in the New Testament. And that word means an advocate or someone to back you up. So the Holy Spirit as an advocate acts as the spirit of God that empowers what we do. That's what an advocate does. They support, corroborate, or empower the action that we take. So when we choose to obey scripture, the Holy Spirit comes in to advocate our obedience with his power. So that's why it says signs and wonders follow those who believe. So now that being said, I want to get into Matthew chapter 28, as I mentioned, and we will talk about the great commission, what it actually says, what's the description of a disciple in Jesus own words. So let's start Matthew 28, verse 16, verse 16. Could somebody also shut that door right there? That'd be great. The noise from the other room is a little bit distracting. Thank you. Okay, so Matthew 28, verse 16 says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So when Jesus gives them this great commission, half of them are still doubting whether this is actually Jesus or not. So they were not in perfect condition. So we don't have to be in perfect condition either to be able to hear the Great Commission and obey it. In fact, most of the growth that we go through comes in the process of that obedience. The, okay, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll get to that later. Let's just keep reading. Verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, go. It's the first thing. Step one, if you guys are taking notes about a summary of the Great Commission, first thing you should write down is go. 
Now, what do we do when we go? He says to make disciples of all nations. Now, then in the following verses, he describes what it means to go and make disciples. And the, the, his description is not the typical, you know, handout tracks on the street evangelism that much of us are used to. That's a part of it. That can be a support to it. But notice what he says, baptizing them in the name of the father of the son and of the Holy spirit. So there's the baptism. That's the first thing he says. Then he says, teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. Now the result would be based on the definition of the word disciple that once they're baptized unto repentance into Christ, they're taught to obey or the word observe means to obey all things that Jesus commanded the 12. And then as a result, they go make disciples themselves. So the pattern continues. So there's three things. It starts with go. The three things after go are baptize, teach to obey all things Jesus commanded, and then for them to be sent out and to go themselves. That is what it means to build the body of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, we're going to talk about what Jesus means when he says, first of all, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And this is where we get into the 10 characteristics of the ordinary Christian. When Jesus said, teach the disciples you make to observe all things I have commanded you, his point was everything that Jesus told the 12, he told the 12 to teach others. Everything. Nothing was supposed to be left out. So a mistake that some of us make is we'll look in like the gospels and Jesus will, it says like, for example, in Matthew 10 verse one, it says, Jesus gathered his 12 disciples to him. And it says that he gave them power to cast out demons. And then it says over and to cure every sickness and every disease among the people. Some translations say all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. So we'll take a verse like that and say, okay, that was Jesus instructions to the 12 the original 12 apostles. But why would Jesus tell his 12, every disciple you make, teach them to obey everything I told you. If we leave out half of what he told them, it doesn't work that way. So Jesus said everything that he taught the 12 apostles, they were to teach to their disciples. So the idea then is since the apostles are gone, they've passed away or generations upon generations later. We are now a church, a body of Christ, and how many of you, by show of hands, just to do a quick poll here, have had somebody teach you to do all that the 12 apostles did? Besides me. <laughs> yes. Not very many. That's kind of the point. So, let's go to this, and if you're taking notes, this is the list we want to get into now, these 10 characteristics. So, if we go... First, the, the, I'm not going to pull up all these scriptures because it'll take too much time, but I just want you guys to write down the references if you're taking notes to, for your own study. So number one, 2 Timothy 2.24 says, a servant of the Lord must be able to teach. Not a pastor, not a preacher, not an evangelist. It just says a servant of God. Are you guys servants of God? So it says you got to be able to teach. 2 Timothy 2.24. Another reference is 1 Peter 3.15, which it says you must be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you in Christ Jesus. It's basically the point is that you need to be able to explain why you believe what, not just what you believe, why you believe what you believe, and to be able to communicate that to somebody else. And Timothy, Paul also said, commit these things that I have taught you to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's another example. So 2 Timothy 2.24 is key. Number two, this is based on 1 Peter 2.15 which says that this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So the expectation there, the potential, I should say of the Christians that we would be able to silence opponents of the gospel by our good works, not by our arguments, not by our apologetics. But when you got somebody, for example, who criticizes hypocrisy in the church and saying that, for example, we, preach one thing in church, say one thing when we're around believers, but then at home, it's a different story. We get blamed for hypocrisy sometimes, but when by your good works in the home, the world can see your marriage is healthy. Your relationship with your children is healthy. That good work is what dismantles the argument against Christians that they're hypocrites as one example. So he, Peter in this, chapter, if you read first Peter two, his whole point, the whole point of the chapter 
is that when you are criticized or suffer for doing good, the good that you do without having to say a word is what silences that opposition. So in many cases, we don't have to say a whole lot when it comes to opponents of the gospel. So that's what that's about. Number three, based on Acts chapter two, verse 39, it says the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for all your children and to all who are afar off. Peter originally said that to the Jews in Acts chapter two. The point was the promise of the Holy Spirit with all of his characteristics, all of his gifts and all of his fruits. All of that is promised to you and to your children in every generation, everyone who's afar off. And that's a category that we are under. So the promise of the Holy Spirit is given to everyone. So that's why in Ephesians 5, it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be full of the Spirit. So all of us should be full of the Spirit. That's number three. And you can write down Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. And with being full of the Holy Spirit, if you just read the book of Acts, there's signs and wonders included in that. And so as a result, one example would be to be able to heal the sick. This is in Mark 16. We're going to go there next um, after Matthew 28. Mark 16, verses 17 through 18. You should write down those verses. It says, these signs will follow those who believe. Are you guys believers? It then describes the signs of those who, oh, up on the screen. There we go. Next verse. Cast out demons, speak with new tongues, take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. For believers. Believers who get saved. That's what it says. And it comes as a result of being full of the Holy Spirit. So, number four included in that list is to be able to cast out demons. Now, I want you guys to go to, real quick, before we go to Mark 16, go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. There's just kind of a humorous example in this chapter that makes me laugh every time I read it. Mark chapter 9, and let's start reading in... Verse 38, well, to get context, let's start in verse 35. Mark chapter 9, verse 35, okay? So it says, and he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms... He said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him saying, so here's the interesting part about it. If you look at the context in other, uh, the other gospels about these children, they were criticizing and refusing the children because they were trying to get close to Jesus, and they thought Jesus was too important to mess with children, right? And so then Jesus rebukes them and welcomes the children into his arms. So now the disciples have been corrected. Jesus wants to be around kids. So then they come up with another excuse. Verse 38, John answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against me is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, surely I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So the reason why this makes me laugh is because these disciples think they're the special ones because they've been chosen. And they're the ones Jesus sent out to cast out demons and to heal the sick and all this crazy stuff. And all of a sudden, this random guy, completely nameless, mentioned one time in the Bible, they, the disciples point him out and say, he's casting out demons in your name and he doesn't follow us. You didn't pick him like you picked us. And Jesus says, that's awesome. Don't forbid him. Nobody who works a miracle in my name can afterwards speak evil of me. So his point was, I'm happy about that guy going out and working miracles. It doesn't matter if he follows us. He's not part of our church necessarily, our denomination, our church brand. He's just a follower of Jesus. Random guy. This guy, it's, in fact, it's likely that this guy, when it says that he does not follow us, he was not following Jesus around with the 12. He didn't go on all these trips. He wasn't traveling with the disciples. They just happened to find him. Now, what does that say about us? Are we one of those, I don't want to say random, but ordinary disciples? Yeah, absolutely. Jesus said, do not forbid him, so why would he forbid us? Just think about it. Okay, now let's go to Mark 16, Mark's account of the Great Commission. Most of this is going to be summary so far, and we're going to get into details in the coming weeks. 
about how we actually do all this. Okay, Mark 16. Now, we're going to continue with our list of the characteristics of a biblical Christian. So I mentioned number three and number four. The fourth one was to be able to cast out demons. That was in Mark 16. Number five, this is based on Philippians 2, verses 14 through 15. I would write that passage down. And that says, do all things, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So it makes it very clear that as a Christian, the call is to be blameless and harmless in the midst of this world. Now, we know in our, in our own works, we're not blameless in the sight of God. That's why we have grace. Through grace, he names us blameless. But it makes it very clear in the sight of the world, we should be blameless and harmless. So the world should be able to look at a Christian and see nothing that they can speak evil of. In fact, in Titus chapter 2, like verse 15, it says, let no one despise you. Let no one despise you. There's an example in Romans chapter 12. I think it's verse 19 around there somewhere. It says that let love, or verse 9, Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Another example is in James chapter 3. I think it's around verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. It says, but if there's envying and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. For the wisdom that is from above is first peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, and full of good fruit. The point was, if you're saying you are wise and are doing good works, the wisdom that's from above is peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, and full of the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're claiming wisdom without the demonstrated character of Christ, he says in the next verses that it's, the wisdom that is demonic. So he's saying, if you're doing a good work, because it's the Christian thing to do, if you're claiming wisdom, but he says, if there's envy or self-seeking in your heart, don't lie and boast against the truth. So don't claim truth if there's self-seeking in your heart. If you're doing a good work for your own sake, for your, your own stance, how the world views you, how Christians view you, if that's what it's about, he says, it's not wisdom that's from above. Blameless and harmless in the sight of the world. That's Philippians 2. So that was number five in the list. Now, these are not, although they may sound like high standards for a lot of people, these are just, according to the Bible, this is just basic. Basic Christianity. Now, if we don't make this our mark, and, and if it's not our mark, we're not going to press towards it, so then we're never going to reach it. Paul actually said, I have not already attained, nor am I already perfected, but I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. That's in Philippians 3. The point was, he said, I haven't attained perfection, but I'm certainly pressing towards it. Okay, so now let's go to verse, or number 6 here. Just talking about family. The Bible makes it clear in Ephesians 5 and 6 that we should be able to love one spouse and children as Christ loves the church. Talks about just having a stable family. Practical stuff here. Which is going to come actually as a result of being full of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Which brings us into number seven, which is to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life and the love of God. That's based on Galatians 5.22. Which says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And then down that list, you guys can read that on your own time. I know we're going through a lot, but I just want you guys to be aware of these. Number eight. This one's a big one. Doesn't seem like it is for a lot of Christians, but it's huge. It's based on Ephesians 4.28, which says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him work, labor with his hands that he may have to give to those who are in need. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 talks about not being a burden financially to anyone. And 1 John also talks about that if you see your brother in need and you have this world's goods and you shut up your heart from him, how does the love of God abide in you? So it makes it very practical and down to earth in saying, if you're going to claim the love of God abides in you and you have an abundance of resources, whether it's just financial resources, and you don't give to those who are in need, the love of God doesn't abide in you. So the love of God comes all the way down to what you do with your money. So there's that as well. That's number eight, able and ready to give to those who are in need. And it says, if you don't have money to give, that's why it says to labor with your hands so that you do have to give to those who are in need. Get a job. 
That's the point. Amen? Okay. Verse 9, or not verse 9, excuse me, number 9 on the list. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. So every Christian should be able to preach the gospel. To preach is basically an announcement, a proclamation of sorts. You don't have to be extremely eloquent. In fact, the apostle Paul himself, this is really interesting. A lot of people don't know this about Paul. Paul himself said that his public reputation was that his bodily presence was weak and his speech was contemptible. Did you guys know that? Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote these letters that are so articulate, so profound, and yet he says speech was contemptible. So apparently Paul wasn't that, that great at public speaking, but he says who we are in letter, we are in truth. So the point was, for whatever reason, I can communicate better on paper to show you what I really believe and who I am. But when it comes to speaking, I'm not that great at it. So you don't have to be a great speaker. You can preach the gospel and stumble with your words and people will still be rocked. Amen. So you got to be able to preach the gospel. Now, notice that in Mark 16, it says that go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, if Jesus only wanted the apostles, again, to preach the gospel, they died before they reached all the world. So the only way we can reach all the world is if all the disciples are preaching the gospel. Which means, and, and to the, the name evangelist just means somebody who preaches the good news. So if we're all called to preach the gospel, we're all evangelists in some way, shape, or form. All of us. There is a specific office of the evangelist, but that is uh, something that Paul specifically points out. But as far as the, the whole of Christianity, all of us are called to preach the gospel. That's number nine. Number 10, this is my favorite one. And I think it's the most important one. I think it's the greatest privilege and the thing that should fill you with wonder more than anything else. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, where it says, no longer will any man teach his neighbor or his brother know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest. If you guys could get that one up on the screen, Jeremiah 31, 34, that would be awesome so that we can see it. There we go. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, which means this is the promise of the new covenant. It's quoted in Hebrews. It is about Christians today. And it says, all of us are supposed to know him. Now in the old Testament, Moses had to know God and relay what God told him to the public. Same thing happened with Elijah. Every prophet and every king that lived under the old Testament or every priest, they were responsible for receiving instructions from God that would then be relayed to the people. And God is putting an end to that in the new covenant by saying, everyone will know me from the least to the greatest. Doesn't matter your status, your position, doesn't matter your, your nobility or your lineage. All that matters is you understand you don't need somebody to teach you to know God. You can know him personally. That's the biggest thing. Cause if we don't know him personally, we can't do any of this stuff anyway. We're not going to be able to preach or teach, have a solid, stable family. We're not going to be able to be blameless in the sight of the world. We're not going to be full of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. We're not going to be without hypocrisy unless we understand that we can know him personally. That is the calling on the Christian, actually, first and foremost, above all else, to know him. It's based on John chapter 17, verse 3, where Jesus said, eternal life is to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's why we're here. Everything flows from that. That's why he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask and it will be done. So if we're asking for these characteristics or qualities to be in our lives, but we don't abide in him, which means to know him, then we can't produce that fruit. The, the, the produce of your life comes out of abiding in Christ. So if we don't know him, we can't do this. And that's all, it's also in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where it says that God is love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So in order to love, we need to know God. If you don't know God, you can't love. And if you're not loving, it means you don't know God. So if, we, if people have an issue with showing love to everyone, regardless, sometimes we justify bitterness or animosity that we hold against people. But the Bible makes it very clear. It says, if you hate your brother, the love of God does not abide in you. And actually says that your heart is a heart of a murderer. If you hate your brother, it's strong language, but it's in the Bible. The point is, if God loved us at our worst while we were yet sinners and yet he died for us, that's the love he poured out in your heart. So if that love is in you, 
the love of God, knowing God produces that kind of love. So if that love is not in us, do we know God? Likely not. We may know part of him. We may know a little bit about him. But if the love of God is not in us, it says it's because we don't know it. It's quiet. <laughs> it's good stuff, though. Okay. So the 10th the characteristic, independent intimacy with God. Everybody can know him. Everyone. I've heard it said by a few different ministers that there's no, no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. So those of you who are, for, for children and kids, they can be full of the same power of God that an adult can. In fact, in many times, it's actually more powerful because they don't have all the baggage from religion in many cases. That's why Jesus welcomed children into his arms. Because he knew what was in them. Okay, so let's go to Mark 16. Let's actually read, read there now, having turned to it. So Mark chapter 16, and let's start in verse 14. Mark 16, verse 14. Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He just, gets, again, he just gets done rebuking them for their unbelief and then gives them instructions. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized. Again, this is all the people in all the world. Among those people, those who believe and are baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Now, let's talk about the signs thing. The word sign in Greek is basically something that indicates something or something that points in a particular direction. So it means almost exactly what we imagine it means. So a sign, which Jesus says is these wonders, these miracles, he says are to accompany the Christian in their preaching of the gospel so that through their preaching, God can point the witnesses in the direction of him. That's the idea. So that's why miracles and preaching are supposed to go together. And so there's an example of this in Acts chapter 4, or 14, excuse me, Acts chapter 14, it's like in verse 3, where Paul and Barnabas were preaching in a particular city. And it says that God was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So Paul and Barnabas were preaching in this city, yeah, there it is. Speaking boldly. So they're, they're preaching. They're preaching the gospel. And it says that God, to confirm or bear witness to, to give proof of the word they were preaching, he granted signs and wonders. So the idea here is that if we are going to go after miracles without the accompanying gospel that we preach, it's not meaningless, but it's intended to go together in partnership with the gospel. And so I've done quite a bit of uh, street evangelism and I, I've noticed that there are certain times when the only chance you may get with someone is just to pray for them. And it may be quick. It may be for pain in their body, whatever. It could be for any, any need. But I've found it to be the most complete form of evangelism when you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them, short or long, whatever they're willing to hear, and then pray for them. And I, I've seen just some remarkable things take place in, in including those two together. And so stands to reason that if God confirms the word of his grace, then if we're not seeing the accompanying, accompanying signs, it may mean we're not preaching the word of his grace. Cause why would he confirm a word that's not his? So this is why I ask myself and I ask you all and I ask Christians if there is no power of God in what we're preaching, not just for these miracles, but even for the simple miracles of a marriage being saved, an addiction being broken, um, a family being restored, those are also miracles. If there is no power in what we're saying, 
Is it the gospel? Paul himself said, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, I will not know the word of those who are puffed up, but the power, because the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So when he says those who are puffed up, what he was referencing in context was preachers who he called false teachers, actually. And he said that they were puffed up in what they're preaching. They were boastful about their ministry. And he says, I don't care about the words being preached by those who are puffed up. Is there power in what they're preaching? If there's not, it's not the kingdom of God. Another example of this is in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, where he said, I will preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. The wisdom of words was a reference to the Corinthian culture in which public speaking was very popular. It was, it was a form of entertainment. So there was competitions. They, this is when the Corinthians, the Greeks and Romans started building theaters around the same time, the Colosseum, that whole kind of thing. They'd build these theaters and people would sign up to give speeches and they were simply rhetoric and you would be scored points based on your articulation, based on your eloquence and based on how much you could memorize. So sometimes these guys, and this is what's cool about the culture is that their memory was so sharpened that they could give two hour speeches that were memorized word for word from a page. Two hours memorized word for word. So this is, Paul is preaching in this kind of culture. And he says, if I go to these people preaching with human wisdom and eloquence like they're used to, it doesn't matter if what I'm preaching is the gospel, it will be made of no effect in their hearts because it will seem like it's all about my wisdom. Because they were so used to the profundity and eloquence with which people spoke. So he said, I'm just going to preach foolishness. Christ and him crucified the simple gospel, but yet it has power. So now their faith is in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. So we do in part live in a culture where intelligence, intellect, and eloquence is, is quite valued. Universities, anybody who's intellectual in any way, shape, or form. I've had some conversations with quite a few atheists that really want to know the proof, the evidence, the explain this, explain that, answer this, logic, logic, logic. Now, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1 is if I answer their demand for intellect with wisdom of words, even if what I'm saying is the truth, it just entertains their desire for words. And that's it. He's saying, I would rather be named a fool and have power and then people will believe. So what does that say about apologetics? I wouldn't say they're inherently wrong. There's a time and place for it. But Paul said, I will use wisdom of words among those who are mature. So he's saying there, a person has to be in a particular state of maturity to be able to be, hear wisdom of words and, and actually receive it correctly. He's saying for all these Corinthians, I can't use wisdom of words. I, have to, I actually have to come across as a fool and have power in order for them to listen to me and actually regard what I say as truth and not as rhetoric. So next time somebody is online or in person and calls Christians or you as a Christian crazy, take it as a compliment. But also remember that after they call you crazy, ask yourself, are they calling me crazy because hypocrisy, something negative? Or are they calling me crazy because what I believe sounds foolish? And if it does sound foolish to them, it's not a negative thing if underlying that reputation of foolishness in the side of the world, you have power. So somebody comes to you, it doesn't matter if it's some, even doesn't have to be an atheist, but somebody who's just a skeptic, somebody who's just not quite sure whether they need to believe what you believe. If they can come to you saying, you're a fool, you're crazy, you're a nutcase, you're just religious. Can you take that name and turn it around and say, and yet... This is what's happening in my life. Here's the power. Here's how this person was here. Here's how this addiction was broken. Here's this person that was saved. And, and be able to demonstrate what you believe. Not just preach it, but to demonstrate it. That's how Paul lived. That's what he said. In fact, in Romans 15, verse like around verse 18 and 19, in Romans 15, Paul said that in order to make the Gentiles obedient, he said, 
It is in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem around, around about to Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel. His point was, in order to make the Gentiles obedient, Gentile just means anybody who's not a Jew. All of us live, all of us probably are Gentiles, just means non-Jew. So he said to actually make a Gentile obedient, to take an unbeliever and turn them into a believer. What did he say to do? In mighty signs and wonders. Because sometimes we'll throw things around like, well, if somebody is determined not to believe, they won't believe even, even if they see a miracle. In many cases, that is true. Jesus did teach that. But yet, we have to bring that into balance, reconciled with what Paul said, because he said there needs to be mighty signs and wonders to make the Gentiles obedient. In Acts, it says that those who are appointed unto salvation will believe. And so there's this idea that people who are determined not to believe regardless are not going to no matter what. We're absolutely right about that. But yet there's a huge number of people that God will, with the sign of the miraculous, point them to Christ with these mighty wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. And he said from Jerusalem roundabout, he's explaining the cities that he's preaching in, he said that I might fully preach the gospel. So stands to reason based on what he said to be able to fully preach the gospel. I have to have mighty signs and wonders by the power of the spirit of God. Because the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So we're not talking about an optional thing here. This is not maybe if God wants to, a miracle might happen and I just leave it up to his sovereign will. This is more about, our expectation. When you preach, are we expecting the accompanying signs? If we don't expect those, we're certainly not going to lay hands on anybody. And Mark 16, in the passage that we read, it says they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover, which to me is about the step of faith. It's saying in order to see these sick recover in many cases, not in every case, because Jesus healed people sometimes just praying for them from a distance. Modern vernacular could mean over the phone, you can pray for somebody. But he says they will lay hands on. So this actually means you have to pray for somebody and touch them with the expectation to heal or to see them healed in order for that to happen. So you can't just leave it up to him without doing your part. That's why it says they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So if we remember, based on Matthew 28, the Great Commission, everything Jesus taught the 12, he taught the 12 to teach us. Now we've got and there's actually more so more there's more teachers and preachers now that are that are teaching this than there were about 50 years ago there's kind of just been some ebbing and flowing with this but now we have quite a few teachers that are talking about and teaching about signs and wonders so now we have that kind of apostolic teaching if you will that instruction given to us now again Matthew 10 Jesus told his 12 that he gave them power to cast out demons and over every sickness and every disease among the people Every single one. Why? This is what this doesn't make sense to me. And if you guys have, you know, some reasoning, then I'd be happy to hear it. But to me, it doesn't make sense why we would believe that it would sometimes be God's will for someone to be sick when he said, I give you authority over every sickness and every disease among the people. You can't reconcile that. You just can't. Now, if somebody doesn't get healed, does that mean it wasn't God's will? No, we're inserting our own opinion if we say that. We may never have an answer, but it's certainly not that one because it can't be. It's contradictory. That's for another sermon. We'll get to it. We're going to talk about it in the coming weeks because I want to teach you guys everything that the Bible says about how to heal the sick, what to do if somebody isn't healed, how to handle it, it's all important. There is answers to these questions. Some of them are hard to hear. Some of them are easier to hear, but they're all important. Now there, yes, I will say there are a few cases in the New Testament where somebody wasn't healed for a specific reason and God gave an answer for it. There's one in 2 Corinthians 11, or 1 Corinthians, no, 2 Corinthians 11. There's also one. Paul, even the Paul, the apostle considered by many to be the greatest Christian who ever lived. He also faced sickness in his life at one point in time, at least it's in Galatians chapter four. He said he had an infirmity in a, in his eyes. 
So this doesn't mean we'll never face sickness. I'm not like a really extreme, exaggerated word of faith preacher, and I think that everybody should walk in perfect, uninterrupted divine health constantly as though God owes that to us because he doesn't. The point was Jesus told his disciples, heal the sick. Well, in order to heal the sick, somebody's got to be sick. So it's don't be afraid of sickness. That's the thing. Jesus wasn't afraid of it. We shouldn't be afraid of it either. So if somebody gets sick, we shouldn't get all freaked out and think, oh, but we're word of faith and we're supposed to believe that they're supposed to be helped. Don't talk like that. That just means you're communicating out of fear. Jesus was not afraid of sickness. So anyway, we'll, that, this whole nother, multiple sermons, we'll get into this. <laughs> but I know it's tough, but we have to, we have to talk about this. We have to. Because how can we obey the Great Commission to do everything Jesus told the 12 if we don't talk about healing? We don't talk about healing, we can't obey the gospel. If we don't talk about casting out demons, we can't obey the gospel. Because otherwise we'll be preaching and we won't believe in anything supernatural. So it'll just be wisdom of words. And all we have to prove and to convince is our own eloquence. But when that happens, you have people believing in your ability to explain instead of in God. So then we face a real life issue, a real life problem. We don't have the answers for it because all we know is believe what I've said until you make it to heaven. But what about right now when Jesus said, I've called you to deliver people from the power of the devil. It's in Acts chapter 26. He told Paul that I've raised you up, that you can give light to people and to deliver them from the power of Satan unto God. The power of Satan oppresses people all the time in, in people's lives all over the planet. And Jesus said we were supposed to have an answer to the power of Satan in people's lives. That's why he says, resist the devil. He will flee from you. You read in James chapter five. This is like in verse 14, where it says, is anyone among you sick? The Bible says Jesus healed all who were oppressed by the devil. Is anyone among you sick? Anyone. Let him be brought before the elders of the church and let him, let them pray for them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. It. This is the, what's cool about the book of, or the epistle of James is that it was given to new believers, just about basics of how to maintain yourselves, how to build a Christian community, what it looks like. He talked about pride. He talked about equality, treating everyone the same, whether they're rich or poor, talked about resisting the devil, submitting to God, all these things. You get into chapter five and he says, if anyone is sick, they're supposed to be brought to the leaders of the church, which in that time, because he's speaking to new believers, he's just saying the people that have been walking for Jesus longer and may know what newer believers don't, they should be able to save the sick. Underneath the definition of the word save, it also means to heal. So again, how can we, how do, how do we deal with that scripture? Again, I'm not going to get into huge detail because I just want us to think about all this. This is just for your own thoughts, but how can we obey the prayer of faith shall save the sick, anyone, if there are certain times when God wants somebody to be sick. Just doesn't, it doesn't compute with me. There are answers to these questions, and we're going to talk about them. I promise you we will. This doesn't mean we're never going to face difficulty or failure or a mistake or whatever. It's going to happen because we live in a fallen world. But God has the answers, and those answers live in the word, and once you get the word in you, those answers will live in you. Once those answers live in you, you can give them to people. Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, I talked about this at our youth event we did yesterday, that for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. In John 20, 21, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Just like God sent me to destroy the works of the devil, what does he send us to do? Destroy the works of the devil. He said it many times. He didn't just tell it to the 12 apostles. He told it to the 70 in Luke chapter 10, that he gave them power to cast out demons and to heal sicknesses. We just can't let any negative experience in life have more authority than the truth that's in God's word. Even if, even if we obeyed this and nothing happened, if nobody was healed, it still does not change what's in the Bible. I don't care what anybody says. I don't want, because there's two kinds of people when it comes to miracles. There's cessationists, which means miracles have ceased. And this continuationist, which means miracles have continued into today. Regardless of what camp you stand in, you cannot prove that stands with an experience. Because that would mean you're putting your experience ahead of scripture. 
It doesn't matter what your position is, even if one of you in this room is a cessationist in one way, shape, or form. That's not really the point. The point is, can we actually, in a godly way, defend that miracles have ceased with primarily Scripture? No. Based on all these Scriptures that we're reading, we can't. So you have to use experience. And for those of you who are continuationists, who believe that miracles have not ceased and they still are active today, you do not, please, do not try to prove that with an experience. I have seen people healed, and it's blown my mind. I don't want to use those experiences to prove my point, because Scripture is supposed to be our authority. Otherwise, I'm just perpetuating this pattern where, where cessationists will say, well, I haven't seen somebody healed, and this news, you know, these news people went and interviewed Benny Hinn, and all the people he prayed for, and like 120 certified were not healed. You can't, otherwise, if we're saying, I know this is true because I have seen people healed using the same strategy as people who use their experience to say otherwise. So you can't, don't use your experience. It's not, not that you can't ever, but you just got to be really careful with it because I want to be able to know what's in the Bible. Okay. So this is, and part of this in the sermons we're going to get into and, and what I'll teach about this, I'm also working on a book right now that is about healing and every single instance in the new Testament of somebody being sick I'm going to put in this book, but it's all going to be just based on scripture. So the chapters are going to be short. I'm not going to, I don't talk anything about my experience, my personal opinion, none of that. I just put in what a scripture says and what the literal interpretation of it, it of it is based on the context. That's all that it is. So it'll be short. It'll be a small book, but it's going to get through all these, all these questions and give answers for them. And so it'll be for your a resource for you guys when that's done. Um, and until then, we're just going to walk through this and teaching and so you guys know what to do. Okay, so, wow, okay, this is a lot. <laughs> you guys handling this okay? Okay, all right. We don't have a ton of time for this, but last thing I want to go over. I mentioned this last Sunday. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 says that Paul intended to perfect what was lacking in the faith of the, of the disciples or the Christians that he was dealing with. One thing that I've heard a lot is people that say, if you believe in Jesus, are a sincere follower of God, your faith is fine. You have faith to be saved, you're good. But Paul says, no, I'm supposed to perfect what is lacking in your faith, which means your faith can lack. I want you guys to, this is, it's never to condemn anyone, but the reality is we don't, most, most of us don't have the complete kind of faith that Paul was trying to produce in his, in the believers that he was teaching. There are things that lack in our faith. So when we face a situation with biblical answers and the answer doesn't manifest, the solution doesn't show, what can it mean? Does it mean the truth is not true? No, it probably means in many cases, not every case, something lacks in our faith. So that's why in James 1, it says that count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because what? The testing of your faith produces patience that you may be perfect and complete, lacking, lacking nothing. So how do, you, how do you perfect what's lacking in your faith? You go through trials. <laughs> To perfect, that you may be perfect and complete in this life. Not perfect in the sense of never sinning. That's not the kind of perfection I'm talking about. Perfection just means fully furnished, complete, equipped for every good work is what it means. This is in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Similar Greek word. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's also an example in Hebrews 13. I think it's around like verse 14 where it says that the great shepherd of the sheep, that's Jesus, through the blood of the everlasting covenant may make you complete in every good work to do his will. So what is the blood of the covenant for? What's the covenant? Well, it's called the new covenant, the new Testament. Why do we have the word to make us complete for every good work? Why do we have scripture that we may be equipped for salvation? That the, 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 All of this new Testament stuff is about completing your faith so that nothing is lacking. So ultimately 
you can do every good work. So the idea is, if there's something that Jesus did that we can't do, that there's probably something lacking that needs to be perfected so that we can do that good work. Now, there are some things that are uniquely Jesus. I understand that. I don't necessarily, well, okay, I don't want to get into that. I was going to talk about him like silence or stopping storms and stuff like that. I've heard of that happening. I'm sure it, sure it happens today. I just, I'm not going to authoritatively say a Christian can like control the weather. I don't know. That's just, it's kind of a just sticky. Anyway, I don't want to go there. I already did, but (laughs) (laughs) that's between you and the Lord. Maybe we'll, I, I just don't know what I believe about that right now. So that's, that's just me. But anyhow, so complete for every good work, every good work based on Jesus example would be the works that he did. John 14, 12, I've quoted this to you guys many times. John 14, 12 says that he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to my father. What Jesus did, those works, he said we could do. So to be complete for every good work, we have to go through trials. Woo! So many of those trials mean you face a problem, you don't have an answer. Somebody you loved gets sick and dies. That's a trial. Nobody can deny that that's a trial and it's hard. But if I let that trial destroy me, or if I let what happened, if I let a negative experience determine my theology, I'll try to create this, I'll I'll use these theological gymnastics to explain away based on the sovereignty of God, why somebody died and it's removing responsibility for myself and putting it all on God. The Bible says in Psalms 119 that I would have perished in my affliction unless your word had been my hope. So the point is that if you want an affliction to strengthen you, refine you and perfect you, you have to cling to the word more than anything else. But if you twist that word to your own destruction, then it's not going to produce anything. So you can't, don't try to create an opinion, an explanation around why something didn't happen. Because it's not supposed to be complicated. You just focus on being loved by him, cling to the word, believe what the Bible says, regardless of experience, so that next time when you face that trial again, you make it out. You beat it. Paul said, there was a trial in my flesh, which means he went through a test of sickness at some point in his life. It can be for yourself. It can be others. Things happen. It's not whether it happens. It's what we do when it happens. Because the devil's a jerk. And he's just going to do things to hurt people. He's going to try to do things to hurt you. But Jesus said, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. That's supposed to be our lifestyle, that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but there's nothing on me that he can grab a hold of. It's like when boxers put oil all over their body so that they can't get grabbed. They just get slippery. That's what it's supposed to be. You get the word all over you, you get slippery to the devil, and he can't grab you. Amen? That's how we're supposed to live. I'm not saying trials aren't going to happen, because sometimes if we get into extremes in word of faith preaching, people will just say, like, well, the devil can't do anything because I'm a child of God. The devil's a jerk. He does things. He did things to Jesus. He did things to Paul. He did things to the apostles. The devil resisted and fought against the disciples. It happens. Paul was stoned for goodness sakes. He's going to come, but we're supposed to be able to resist him. And it says he'll flee. Okay. Um, Yeah. Amen. Okay. Now, oh yeah, the last thing. What is discipleship? Now, this is the thing, after going through all these characteristics that I've shared with you, this is the mark we press towards, to be able to teach, to be able to heal, to be able to cast out demons. This is the standard. This doesn't mean every Christian has to be this now, because we will grow, but this is the mark we press towards. Now, ultimately, the way that you make a disciple is not to teach it. Now, here's the thing. This is actually going to be me criticizing my own preaching. (laughs) I say this. The Bible says you can't make a disciple unless you model it. You be an example to the flock. That's what it says. I am not discipling you necessarily by teaching this to you. That's a part of it. The Bible, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul did say, 
appoint these things to others also so that they may be able to teach or to be able to teach others also. So teaching is important, but it's just one little piece of it. Everywhere that Jesus went, he taught, he preached, but then he healed. He lived it. He modeled it. So he didn't just teach it. He did it in the sight of his disciples. So now what's interesting about this is that if you look at, oh, I don't remember the reference. I believe it's Matthew 9. I'm likely wrong about this, but there's an example. Uh, I think it's Matthew's account of Jesus healing the paralytic when they removed the tiles from the roof and let the guy down through the roof. So Jesus healed the guy. And then it says the multitudes marveled that such power had been given to men. Interesting. So we're dealing with the son of God, Jesus Christ himself, who heals a paralyzed guy. And the multitudes didn't say that it doesn't say that they marveled because such power was given to Jesus. It says they marveled that such power was given to men. Why did they say that? Because they didn't expect Jesus as a man, the carpenter from Nazareth to be able to do this. So when Jesus said the works that I do, you would do also his point was that he did it as a man. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, which would be us. In all things, he had to be made like one of us. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Here's another interesting thing that's going to kind of boggle your mind a little bit. James 1 says God cannot be tempted by evil. Right? So if Jesus is God, and he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, is he still God? Because God can't be tempted, but Jesus was tempted. He was tempted as a man. So when Jesus faced trials and temptations, he had to face that exclusively and 100% as a human being. If he did it as God, he would disqualify himself from being tempted. So what does it say about our potential? Jesus was baptized, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he did and overcame the temptations of the devil by the power of God, but he did it as a man. I'm not denying his deity. He, Jesus Christ is God the, uh, dwelling in unapproachable light, the only potentate and king of kings and Lord of lords. I believe that. It's in the Bible. He's God manifest in the flesh, but much of what he did, he had to do as a man. So we can do it too if he lives in us. Every temptation, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Notice when we read that verse, he's tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We'll say, well, he could do it without sin because he's God. Wait a second. He can't be tempted as God. So if he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, when the devil brings a temptation, a trial, a test comes into your life, can we overcome it too? Jesus did it as a man. We're human beings. I didn't hear any of this for so long. Nobody ever taught me this. It's in the Bible. Meditate on the word day and night. Then you'll prosper and have good success. Amen. Okay. So being an example, there is so much. Uh, I'm going to have to listen to this message. There's so much going on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You'd listen to yourself too if you were preaching. Anyway. So... To be an example. Now, I just want us to go one more. We've gone through so many scriptures. Okay, just one more. Just one more. One more. Let's go to First Corinthians 4. First Corinthians 4. Tempted by evil? Yes, James 1, 13. Well, if you read verses 12 through 14, you'll get the whole context. James 1, 13. 13. Yes, James 1, 13. Cannot be tempted by evil. It's an incredible concept when you think about it. Okay. 1 Corinthians 4. Verse 14. This one really, really convicts me every time I read it. Verse 14 says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Here's his warning. It's probably so stern of a warning that he says, I don't want to shame you. So don't be ashamed about this. 
there's a potential to be unless we're careful. So he says, though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Paul also said in Galatians 4 that he said he labors for you so that Christ may be formed in you. Then he says, verse 16, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Here's the deal. We're going to talk about just the whole of Christendom on the planet. You, though you have 10,000 instructors, you don't have many fathers. What is a father? He says somebody who begets somebody in the faith and somebody who labors for Christ to be formed in them. The way you raise a child is the way you make a disciple. So he says, the result, imitate me. First Corinthians 11 verse one, he said, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. So here's the issue with Christianity in the world today. We are just like these people. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of instructors. I'm sure every single one of you in this room could name a, bun name a bunch of names of all these preachers that you've listened to. I could be one of them. But here's the problem. You can listen to all those instructors, but if you don't have a father in the faith, you're not being discipled. If you don't have somebody in your life to imitate, that's not a complete discipleship happening. That's how Paul said he made disciples was by example. Now, here's the issue. In order to raise a disciple as a father would raise a child, that means you've got to spend a lot of time together. And that also means that spending time with this person, they're supposed to be able to exemplify Christ and not just be another Christian who says, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And, you know, we're going to have weaknesses. We're going to have flaws. I get that. But we still overcome. We can be an example of how we face those flaws. But Paul is trying to say, this is, this is disciple making. It's to have somebody to imitate, to have a father. You can have 10,000 instructors, but if you don't have a father, it's not really discipleship. And so another example of this, if you look at in first Timothy, it talks about how Paul said, if anybody desires to be an overseer, they desire a good work. An overseer is just somebody who watches over people. Another word for it is an inspector, a superintendent who manages people. It doesn't mean managing a church. It just means people to oversee people, to watch over people. He says, there's these characteristics, not given to wine, not greedy for money, not, uh, not hasty or, or intemperate. He said they have to be patient and kind and gentle, able to teach. He said that they're to rule their own house well, to have a solid relationship with their wife and to have their children in submission with reverence. Why does he talk about what most preachers don't make a requirement for overseeing people in the church. He talks about your home life is critical. Why does he talk about the home life so much? Because if you're making a disciple, the implication is they're going to be in your home much of the time, not necessarily as much as your own children, but they're going to be around you so much that they see your home life. They see how you treat your spouse. They see how your children treat you and you treat them. They're going to see every detail because you're modeling every detail. Again, this doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. We know that we will. But that's discipleship. So we're implementing these changes in, in this church, in this community. And the, these changes that we're making, we have a, we're going to have a leadership meeting after, after service here to talk about this. But the point is what we want to be able to do with this church is give every single member of this community somebody to follow around and watch. This doesn't necessarily mean like they have to move in your house. It's not what I'm saying, but they are going to practice or you're going to practice this discipleship, whether it be as a disciple maker or as a disciple to be discipled. The goal ultimately is that all of you will be able to make disciples, right? That's, that's the great commission. So I mentioned this last Sunday, we're putting it in three phases. This is kind of part of the announcements at the end of service here. There's three phases of this discipleship. There's, there's teaching, there's evangelism, and then there's simple fellowship, caring for one another. You could call it feeding the poor, providing for those who are in need. Jesus walked his disciples through all of these things. He had them teach and preach the gospel. He had them go out house to house, heal the sick, spend time in people's homes, helping deliver them from the oppression of the devil, casting out demons. And he also had them caring for children, caring for orphans and widows. And so 
every single disciple has got to go through all those things in order to be able to do what Jesus said we're able to do. And so we're not going to make anybody do this, but I will just warn you that if you don't or are not willing to at least try, it's going to feel just empty. It's going to feel stale, which is ultimately what we're trying to undo. We want people to be able to come here and know that it's, it's lively. It's full of life. There's the real power of God here. But you have to be being discipled in order for this to really be what it's intended to be for you. So we're, we're still, our leadership here at Valiant, we're still working through details as to what this is going to look like. But all of you will be involved in some way. And we're, we're already doing this in Minneapolis, and we're going to start doing it in New Hope, in the city that this church is located in. And so we're using New Hope and Minneapolis as essentially two locations to be able to practice this, to implement it, to make disciples. We've, there's, I'll just say that we need help. <laughs> we, we started making disciples in Minneapolis, and there's so many people that just need help and need somebody outside of some entitled pastors and preachers. They just need the body of Christ. They need family. And you guys can be that family to them. Doesn't have to be me. Doesn't have to be the people that are on staff. We technically don't even really have staff. I don't, I don't want this to feel like a church as most of the world is used to. It's just supposed to be a living organism, the body of Christ and a family, right? Okay. All right. Could you guys stand, please? I'll pray for you before we close.